Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Opioids and Fentanyl, Preventing Occupational Exposure to New Threats, sponsored by Ansel. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I will moderate today's session. Thank you all for joining us. We'll start the presentation in a few minutes, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speaker and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question anytime during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. And we'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's speaker. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today is Derek Hornecki. Vice President of Research and Development for Ansel's Healthcare Global Business Unit, whose responsibilities include quality assurance and regulatory affairs. Derek has nearly 20 years of experience in the personal protective equipment industry in both the medical and industrial sectors. Derek, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Hey, thank you, Alan. And um, you know, first of all, thanks to, to all the attendees who dialed in today. Uh, and are participating. Uh, we had a tremendous response with uh, probably over 1,200 registered attendees, and um, we've really designed this so that the information will be both important to, and we think relevant to your daily lives and, uh, and your safety. Uh, also, really special thanks, uh, Alan, to, to you, the National Safety Council, Safety and Health Magazine, uh, really being instrumental in bringing meaningful um, educational content uh, and information to the industry. So. I uh, want to say thanks for that, and with that, let's get started. Um, a quick overview on what we'll touch on today. <clears throat> First, I'll spend a, you know, a decent chunk of time on uh, the rise of fentanyl and, and what it is, why we're talking about this one um, specific drug or this specific opiate. Uh, then we'll move in, we'll talk about exposure, um, uh, what's going on with this kind of alarming trend, who should be concerned and why how uh, emergency responders and law enforcement professionals can stay protected. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about some of the uh, ancillary professions that are also being impacted by the, uh, the widespread use of, of fentanyl. Uh, in section four, we'll touch on how ANSEL is helping and what, what we're doing uh, to provide information and protective solutions uh, to the industry. And we'll end with a summary in Q&A. So that's our, our quick overview. Um, but let's dive into uh, to the rise of fentanyl <clears throat> and this increasing threat. So uh, a few key stats to set the stage and um, a, a huge rise. So what is, it, what is it that it's alarming or what is it that is so alarming here? Uh, two things. One, uh, it's a very large number of people being affected. Uh, and we're looking at deaths. The, the, uh, the non-lethal overdose numbers are, are even more staggering. Um, but if you look at a large number, and it's a rapidly increasing number. Um, probably people are familiar with, uh, whether it's uh, Prince or Carrie Fisher, who was Princess Leah, some of the more notable uh, fentanyl overdose victims. Um, but it, it's a large number uh, within society today. Um, and here's the, here, here's the impact it's having to the unintended or the inadvertent contacted people. Uh, law enforcement reporting a, a double um, or, or double the number of encounters with fentanyl. Uh, so you can see immediately that this, it's, it's broader use. It's nearly a perfect correlation. Uh, as, the, as the popularity grows, we expect the uh, inadvertent or, or unintentional contact and exposures to continue to grow uh, right alongside that number. And why is it? So here's kind of the answer to the why just fentanyl. Uh, the opioid category, right? We have some of our of our um, of our old favorites, whether it's heroin, morphine, um, codeine, uh, oxycodone, or oxycontin, and yet fentanyl in the category 
is greater than 50% of all the opioid deaths. So this one chemical is causing an inordinate number of, of deaths and or impact. Uh, and, and would say <clears throat> with most of the people I've talked with, um, many weren't even necessarily aware of fentanyl until just a few years ago. So part of our goal today is to really drive the awareness, see what's happening with fentanyl around, uh, we're focusing on the U.S., but there, there are some global implications here, um, and what we can do to be better protected for this somewhat unknown but also uniquely uh, dangerous threat. So uh, let's talk briefly, what is fentanyl? Well, it, it, in a high level, uh, it's a narcotic. It's a, it's a fantastic pain reliever. Um, it's an anesthetic, so it can be used in surgical applications. It has a, a reasonable range uh, of pain management applications in medical uses, um, all actually quite good. Um, <clears throat> the, some of the issues, and, and we're, we're addressing this one, specifically this is, is an opioid, but we refer to it as a synthetic opioid, which simply means uh, that it can be synthesized in labs, we don't have to wait for the flowers to grow or the poppies to be harvested. Uh, some of the indicators we might use, this, this can be chemically synthesized and chemically modified. So what's the issue? Uh, well, A, of course, it is very, very effective. It's also incredibly potent um, at up to 100 times the strength of morphine and heroin. Um, and in very small doses, uh, it can have a tremendous effect. Um, it, it, as a drug, going back to how it works. So fentanyl easily passes or crosses what we call the blood-brain barrier. So it has readily, ready access to, uh, to the brain or to the opioid receptors in the brain. At that point, the brain will simply release a, a, a corollary amount, or we might even refer to a flood of dopamine. Um, and this is where you get the, the pain management you get the anesthetic, uh, but you also get a more of a, just a broad central nervous system depression. So quite strong, quite potent. Um, it is uh, and has been for the last few years a controlled substance, which simply means uh, it is, we call it prescription only, but, but how we enforce that is it's illegal to sell it or buy it without a prescription um, is, is the key issue there. And if you look at in the illicit forms, um, the problem with a synthetic drug uh, is you, the precursors are somewhat available. I wouldn't say readily available, but the precursors are somewhat available. Um, they're not incredibly complex to make. They're not necessarily simple either. But if you go back to look at the potency, so it, at, at 100 times the potency of heroin, and I'll even talk about some versions of fentanyl that are even 100 times stronger than base fentanyl. So now you're talking up to 10,000 times stronger than heroin. Massive quantities don't have to be smuggled, right? This is no longer the days of uh, people walking in with, with uh, several kilos uh, of hash or marijuana. This is very small amounts uh, that can provide lethal doses. So, you know, to come back, when used properly, very effective um, for severe trauma pain, for surgery, um, for cancer patients, has some wonderful benefits. The illicit uses, though, are quite dangerous. All right, um, how people become exposed. So <clears throat> the real simple answer here is any route to the bloodstream uh, is an exposure route. Uh, some are faster than others. Um, you look at injecting or inhaling, are the fastest, and, and I'm really focusing here on the unintentional exposure. Um, injecting is probably the, the most common uh, from a, a, uh, an illicit drug user perspective, but from an, from an unintended exposure, uh, you're most often going to deal with either inhaled or absorbed amounts. So uh, these are um, quick ways into the bloodstream. Uh, they are somewhat controlled. These, are, these also include the body's natural uh, filtration systems. So when we inhale, excuse me, when we inhale, uh, we have a, a natural sinus filtration system, and our dermal system is not bad either, but it's, it's certainly not a protective layer. Um, it, 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 I would say ingesting is probably less common for uh, EMS and uh, for some of our law enforcement professionals, 
Um, but as always, you know, as a side note, is just to be cautious of needle sticks, and that's beyond fentanyl. Um, needle sticks are a problem throughout the industry in a variety of fronts. So let's look now at some of the medical forms um, and how it is commonly or intentionally used. Um, you'll see the, the typical tablets, lozenges, patch, liquid. Uh, these are outside of the hospital care. So these are the forms that would be legal and available in the public domain. Um, the patch is used uh, oftentimes, and, and I'll get into how it's used in the illicit versions, but uh, the patch can be a great chronic pain management uh, system. So this is, might be common with someone going through a, you know, a severe cancer treatment um, and needing that. The lozenges are probably somewhat less popular or, or less common, but these would typically be used alongside a patch uh, or with a patch holder. Uh, for what they would refer to as a breakthrough pain or a pain that, that came on and that, it, it, that it usually rapid, rapid onset and exceeds what the, the patch or the, the controlled slow dose can provide. Of course, there are the liquid and tablet versions. Um, and again, uh, both beneficial and effective with the core problem that they are highly addictive. So, with that, let's look at the illicit forms um, and, and the uses and applications. So today, by far the most common applications are what, what might be referred to as some of the designer drugs. So these are mixtures in many cases. And this is where a lot of the problems are coming from. So it's not fentanyl in a straight form. It's not fentanyl in a controlled form or a pure form. It's fentanyl in a, in a mixture. Uh, so picture um, heroin, caffeine, um, uh, sometimes antihistamines are used. Uh, and, and so it's these, these cocktails or, or designer drugs that, that can give a blend of effects. Um, injecting, of course, is the most common. It's a direct route to the bloodstream. So injecting is you know, what, what the drug users might refer to as, as the most uh, impact per dollar or, or per amount. Um, it, it bypasses the body's natural filtration systems. Uh, ingesting, you know, again, now you've got to, it's got to be absorbed. It's, it's slower. It's got to go through the large intestine, small intestine. Absorption rate still gets into the bloodstream, uh, still effective. Um, you can uh, inhale, and in some cases, because the gel patches are not necessarily easily converted to other forms, but they can be burned and inhaled. Um, and, of course, there, there is, is absorption and mixtures. Um, but what I want to do here is talk for a moment on why this particular version is so dangerous and why particularly the, uh, the inadvertent or unintentional contact can be dangerous. But if you look at the, what I call the, the addiction process and, and um, you, you know, talking with whether it's addicts in recovery or users, um, they'll, they'll use terms that, that are almost terms of endearment, that, that they immediately fell in love with the high from the first use, or uh, comments like, nothing is going to stop me from using. Um, or, or, you know, oddly, you know, for the first time in my life, I felt right, or I felt okay. So what happens? They immediately fall in love with this, with this high, with this feeling. It's, it's an extremely strong addiction. Nothing is going to prevent them. So their body starts to respond as our body is designed to respond, which is it starts to build up a tolerance. Um, and with that tolerance, that then requires stronger doses, higher levels, or stronger versions. So enter fentanyl. So let's say that, that an average heroin user is just needing a stronger or, or, or better high, so to speak. Um, it could be cut with caffeine and with fentanyl to give it that strength. But it's a very small dose that you're talking about. So it's not, so, so if, for example, I, I compare it to alcohol. And let's just say that, that uh, you're an average male and you go out and you go, hey, I can have four beers and I feel this way. And if I get up to eight, I'm going to start to get sick. It's much different if you're talking about extremely small quantities. It's hard to tell if a sip is just a taste or the touch of a tongue. So why is this important? Um, it's important because with the users, who have built up a fairly, in some cases, a very strong tolerance to the drug, and it's, and it's used in very small quantities, now enter the non-sensitized or intolerant person. So this is an emergency responder, a law enforcement officer, or just an unsuspecting janitor. 
for that person, a level where a user is, you could say is still, you know, fingers in quotes, functional, could be extremely toxic to the non-tolerant or intolerant system. So that's what we're seeing. You know, A, uh, there, there's a problem in stopping the tolerance or the body's natural defenses. If I go back to the alcohol analogy, what happens if your, your, your body's natural defenses to too much alcohol? Nausea and vomiting to expel, or two, you'll simply pass out and your body will, will process, but you'll typically pass out well ahead of a lethally toxic dose. Not the same with fentanyl. So very critical difference. It slowly depresses the, the, the normal responses and it will start to shut down systems. So I spend a little time on this because it, again, without a tolerance built up, it, it represents a broader danger for, certainly for the users, but also for those of, those of us or, or you know, particularly emergency responders and law enforcement personnel that could simply come in contact uh, with the material. All right, so <clears throat> recognizing, and I'm actually going to touch on what the symptoms might be um, in terms of what, what to look for uh, because it's extremely small quantities that can be um, toxic. And, you know, we've kind of highlighted here, but we're talking about a, a, as, as little as a few grains of salt in the standard fentanyl version uh, that could be, you know, toxic or even lethal. Um, to a, particularly to an intolerant uh, system. And at those, at those small levels, um, you know, very high warning signs. So what to look for? Uh, and when I say severe sleepiness with, with uh, inadvertent contact to, to the fentanyl, so you start thinking about your central nervous system really controlling all bodily functions, whether it's heart rate, respiratory rate, um, reaction times, but you will start to feel, you know, a heavy drowsiness. This might be that I just really need to lay down and take a nap right now. Um, everything will naturally slow down. Might be less obvious. Um, breathing will become shallow. Uh, you, you know, when I say difficulty breathing, I just mean that the, the breathing reflex, the normal breathing reflex is being depressed. Um, you could see cold, clammy skin, trouble walking or talking in people, um, and along with that drowsy effect. So... Uh, when you look at the effects of the drug can be fairly long-lasting. Now, uh, there are some defenses. Once it's in, it is, it is mostly driven, the effect is mostly driven by the concentration or how much uh, has been absorbed into the bloodstream. Um, the the uh, CDC still recommends, and I think most responders and, and healthcare providers uh, are carrying uh, Narcan. And it is a, it, so it's an opioid receptor antagonist is the simple answer. It's really, think of it as a disruptor. Uh, so the Narcan will uh, both, um, both diminish uh, and prevent the onset of further symptoms. So it's important. The, the struggle comes in that most of the uh, responders today uh, or, or those who are carrying Narcan and, and prepared uh, for, this, for this potential threat are not necessarily carrying a sufficient dose. And so I, I, I'm certainly not, I'm not a medical doctor, not here to dispense any kind of medical advice other than the new trend in the CDC is recommending in many cases higher doses, double and triple uh, the amounts of Narcan to counteract the effects of fentanyl. Um, so what do, you, what do you do? So he, these are the symptoms, some pretty clear steps, right? Just simply be aware uh, of these early symptoms. Um, immediately think about preventing any further exposure. Uh, so if, if you're in a situation where there could be airborne um, fentanyl or powder, the powder version is, is going to be a common one that could be encountered in a powder, get a, get a, move away to a well-ventilated area. Um, wash any potentially affected areas immediately. Use appropriate protective equipment in contact. Um, and, and quick side note, so if you think something has become contaminated, wash it in its large doses of water. Don't use alcohol sanitizers. Um, interestingly, the alcohol sanitizers are, are actually decent carriers and can, uh, can aid the process of a, of a dermal exposure uh, getting into the bloodstream. All right, so let's talk about exposure. 
who and where should be concerned. Um, I'm not going to go through any of these news articles. There, there are plenty of them out uh, in the public domain today um, and many similar stories. What I really want to try to highlight is the breadth with which uh, fentanyl is, is impacting the industry. Um, the, so A, we have the, the core fentanyl drug. B, there are what are called the analogs uh, of fentanyl. And these are chemically altered versions. Uh, they're altered to, in some cases, improve or, or increase potency, but not in all cases. For the most part, the, the fentanyl the chemically modified versions of fentanyl or the analogs are really there to circumvent law enforcement. So fentanyl is a Schedule II drug. Well, how about we come up with a modified version of fentanyl that is, is not Schedule II listed? So it is a, an ongoing cat and mouse game, and there's no, uh, there's no reason to believe that it's going to change anytime soon. But my point here is, is really um, being aware of the mild to very severe symptoms, and, and the breadth with which, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the professions specifically, but the breadth with which exposure can happen. So who should be protected? Uh, let's look at the list, and, and I'm going to pull up the first two, which, which is what we call the pre-hospital patient care. These are emergency responders, right, uh, whether, whether it's ambulance, fire, and the law enforcement. Now, we look at these two groups because they encounter a variety of, uh, of situations in their daily lives. And, and I look at these as kind of what I call the Boy Scouts of society. So, that, so these are the groups that have to be prepared for the most uncontrolled situations, unknown, uncertainty. So it is a little bit of that Boy Scout, you know, always being prepared uh, in these first responder situations. This could, it could be the more obvious situation, you know, like a, a drug bust, um, a, um, a, a search, where, where it's already suspected. How, however, in many cases, it could be very unintentional. Um, and again, being cautious that the user may have a tolerance that the, uh, that the EMS person or the law enforcement personnel won't have and could be more greatly impacted. Um, so now let's get into the broader areas. Uh, of course, there is some of the investigation evidence handling. Think about as simple as evidence storage. Um, and this is both the tainted evidence and then uh, contamination on the outside or external to evidence in, in whether it's evidence or sample collection um, or even performing uh, medical procedures uh, and fluid testing can, can all you know, lead to an encounter with fentanyl. Um, and again, not to reinforce enough, because of the small doses and because of the, the chemical variants or different versions of fentanyl out there, um, uh, probably a higher level of caution required. Okay, so let's look quickly. So we look at what we call special operations. Uh, these are decontamination or hazardous material handling. Um, these are clearly what I would call the most potentially dangerous situations, but they're also the most controlled, right? These teams know what they're in for. They're generally prepared. We do want to make sure that the preparation is complete. We'll touch on that as we get into the, into the protection section. Um, but these are in some cases controlled situations. Uh, now let's look at just ancillary, uh, and there are several ancillary professions that have been impacted. Um, maybe some of the more you might not or not top of mind, uh, janitorial staff, uh, simply cleaning up and, and encountering, um, you know, very small doses, but but still leading to potentially severe problems. Healthcare professionals face kind of a unique situation and. When we get into the specific type of protection required, it will become more clear, but picture a healthcare professional is already wearing some protective equipment. Um, so this, this can lead to that false sense of security for a healthcare professional. They're wearing gloves, but the gloves are a healthcare or an exam or patient exam style glove, probably not sufficient protection against fentanyl. Um, you might even consider a mask, uh, but a, a healthcare or even a surgical mask is not a filtration mask that, that uh, that a special operations or an emergency responder would use. So in some cases, I think that uh, the threat with our healthcare teams can be even greater uh, than with the other areas because of the unknown and the false sense of security. So now, given that and the breadth of where and how uh, this drug can be 
um, contracted. Uh, let's look at some of the specific worker protections that, that would be required. And I'm going to start with some of the work that our government agencies have done and are doing. Um, there are efforts going on um, but, you know, across the board with the enforcement agencies to provide good information um, to be able to use it to guide the decision-making process and answer that basic question. I'm in this situation, am I protected? And I, I will tell you that, you know, having read through a lot of the information, there's some fantastic information out there, but the on-site assessment and the judgment call is also incredibly important. So I won't spend a ton of time here, but, but consider there are min, minimal, moderate, and high-risk situations. And risk really is defined as how probable is exposure and how, how high or how great, the, the, what could the level of exposure be? Um, so clearly in a decontamination of a known area, the probability is certain and the exposure level is high. So it's very high risk, it's treated in a hazmat situation. Um, if you also look at it, and it's fairly small and difficult to see here, but there are two grayed out sections um, in the pre-hospital care uh, and in the law enforcement um, duties sections that high risk is, re is really saying not recommended. Now, this is a CDC statement that if, if your on-site assessment says that the risk is high and the potential exposure is there, not to take on the high-risk situation, right? Call in with the appropriately protected teams um, and, and with the right level of protection. Okay, so let's start with some of the simpler basics, and, and, I, and I will refer back to, to the CDC guidelines had, had really broken it up by area, whether it's respiratory, uh, face and eye, hand and dermal protection, um, or body protection. So we'll look first at, uh, at the glove side and how and what uh, are the right things to look for. Um, a, and, and if any of you are listening uh, happen to be, you know, auto mechanics or, or auto hobbyists um, and wear a standard glove when you're working on cars, you know the area of your body that's going to be the most contaminated when you're done other than what was protected on the glove, and that's the wrist, wrist and lower forearm. So look for the, a glove with the, the right length, as we would say. Um, look for, for testing. And I'm going to have a separate slide, so I'll go a little detail that the gloves have actually been tested against the right um, challenge chemicals, in this case a fentanyl, and under the right conditions. Um, of course, always follow uh, the guidelines for the glove, um, whether it is the timing uh, uh, for replacement or if you ever detect a breach uh, to certainly um, replace on time. And select the, the right glove or right size, of course, uh, the CDC is recommending not latex, so look for synthetics like nitrile. But I want to focus for a moment also on this NFPA certification. So uh, the National Fire Protection Association has, has come out with, with a fairly broad set of requirements. And it has what you would expect. Um, is the glove sufficiently strong? Can it, can it resist punctures? Can it resist the right tears? Is it sufficiently thick? Does it have the right level of defects? But one of the things I really like in the NFPA certification is the dexterity test. So it's great if you're safe. It's great if you have the right level of protection. But if you can't simply perform the task, then the protective equipment can become somewhat useful. Um, a couple of ancillary notes uh, to, to include or think about. Double gloving is always an option. Uh, if you're worried, it, it really does uh, reduce your risk in half or double your protection. Also looking for a lower, uh, what we would call a lower AQL, or an acceptable quality level. And this is simply a statistical measure. I won't go into a ton of detail, but the lower the number, the lower the acceptable number of defects. So as a quick reference, for example, the FDA requires or mandates a, a, an AQL of 2.5 or lower for medical exam gloves. Um, Industry-leading products are closer to an AQL or at an AQL of 0.65. So, uh, you know, roughly only allowing a quarter of the defects that the FDA system might allow. All right, choosing body protection. So 
when the situation warrants um, uh, and you've, you've moved in. So we'll look at a few things. One, the body protection will provide uh, or protect the user against both the, the particles. So the powder version, liquid version, also the potential for gas or vapors in, in burning versions. Um, of course, there, there are a variety of things, and I will talk a little bit on some of the Ancel body protection where we'll look at how uh, suits can be um, both tested, uh, how we ensure that the product meets the needs or the broader needs uh, of the user, and the design and the construction. So, for example, uh, easy to look at, say, the material, but we look at considering the body protection as a complete system and how effective is that system in total. So again, guidance depending upon the area of operation, so for pre-hospital patient care or for law enforcement, uh, investigations and evidence, um, uh, particularly for, for um, special operations and decontamination. So as you move left to right, the, the use or need certainly starts to grow um, for body protection. Uh, and again, because of the multiple exposure modes, so I'll go back, right, it can easily be inhaled, dermal contact, uh, vapor, uh, whether that's a burning vapor or, or just, uh, you know, small dust particles, um, all of these can be potentially uh, toxic to, to lethal exposure methods. All right, so, so let's look at the actual testing procedure. So in this case, we're focusing on a liquid-borne test. And what we're doing um, within uh, Ansel is we're using a, a test that's actually designed for chemotherapy drugs. I won't go into chemotherapy drugs. These are, of course, cancer treatment drugs. Um, they're also extremely strong, and they're considered cytotoxic drugs, which means that they're designed to kill cells. So um, cyto or, or these chemotherapy drugs, um, thankfully, they don't have, uh, in fact, they have quite the opposite effect. They not only don't have an addictive feel, um, you'll see very negative side effects for people on chemotherapy drugs. But they're an extremely dangerous drug, and this is one where the need for protection against unintended or inadvertent contact is equally important. So uh, anyhow, the, the chemotherapy drug standard is probably the most applicable. Um, it is about 10 times, or it's exactly 10 times more rigorous than a standard chemical protection test or the standard ASTM test. So how does this process work? So if you look at the droplets on the top, if, it's, if you think of the green layer as a film of either the glove or the protective suit, the droplets above are trying to get through. Uh, the gray disc underneath is the detector. Uh, there are a variety of detection techniques, but you can think of it as a, a sniffer or a, an extremely sensitive detector. So you can have a full challenge chemical on one side, but we're able to detect just molecules of the chemical coming out the other side. And that's that, that 10x sensitivity or the 10x uh, more strict or rigorous. So a fairly straightforward test. You know, the, the quick side note, and we'll touch on it in body protection, of course, is that the, testing the material itself is not necessarily um, sufficient. Testing the entire construction is really more the requirement. All right, as we head into the final section, uh, we'll look at a few of, uh, of the Ansel solutions. So first one I want to touch on is a, a simple but elegant hand protection solution. So this is a product Lifestar. Um, it is specifically designed uh, for emergency responder situations. It is longer, or what we would call an extended cuff. So now you're going to get the hand and wrist protection, uh, lower forearm. Uh, it is a two-layer technology, so you can see by the two colors. Um, in essence, it, it is a bit of that, what we might call the double gloving effect, but built into one. Um, it's the industry leaning very low AQL. So again, lowest level of breaches or, or pinhole defects uh, in the industry, um, and a very high fentanyl resistance. So tested in the most rigorous testing methods, um, still exceeding the four-hour benchmark. So providing that, that level um, of protection 
It's also extremely durable. So that goes back to the NFPA type certification, puncture resistant, tear resistant, um, high level of durability and strength. And then, uh, and then I'll finish with, it has a quite, a, for, for its thickness and level of protection, a fairly soft and comfortable feel. So again, if you, if you think about going back to being safe is wonderful, but, but being safe could also be avoiding the situation. So being safe and comfortable is also wonderful, but it's important that you're safe, comfortable, and able to perform the tasks at hand or perform the job. So specifically designed in that approach um, and uh, you know, a, a part of the line, um, certainly I don't mean to, to propose this as the entire, uh, but we don't want to go through a, a product demo as much as an introduction to some of the key points to look for. Uh, let's look at body protection. And in, within the Ancel line, what you'll find, and we looked at, at how this might marry up with the CDC requirements um, earlier in terms of everything from uh, fairly lightweight, breathable, and comfortable to the very heavy duty, both chemically uh, resistant, particle resistant, um, products and again what what we will do is take a we'll, we'll take the view of what I would call a total system view um, so so for example if you're if you're looking at a body protection solution the total a, a total system view might be a, a total inward leakage so what could you what could expect to to breach the system not necessarily just the materials that is of course the material it's made of it's the construction how the product is put together um, it is the, how the seams are made and formed, um, and it is the testing and certifications or the information that supports those requirements. And, you know, again, all, this is, is a snapshot of the line, and our high-level goal, of course, is going back to having the appropriate protection in the right situation, supporting the, uh, the NIOSH and CDC guidelines, um, and providing that breadth. So I'll also say that, of course, we are here uh, to help answer any specific questions. And with that, um, quick summary uh, on the fentanyl. It, just, just to recap some of the high points. What is it that's alarming? It's the number of incidents and the rapid growth of those incidents. Um, it is becoming more common um, in our society, and therefore the, the chance of inadvertent uh, contact is certainly growing. Um, if we look at the, the right solutions, and, and I'll talk a little bit, I think most people or, or many are familiar with um, uh, the incidents in, in Hamilton County or, or you know, Cincinnati. Uh, reported, and going back, it was nearly two years ago um, that Hamilton County reported 176 uh, overdose-related or fentanyl-related uh, deaths, and the sense there was that uh, afterwards that there would be a reprieve, that both the dealers and the users were now more aware of the risks and the extreme risks related to fentanyl. And so that there would be a reprieve or, or a downtrend. Um, and and I, I'm sad to say that, that while I think that was a good and reasonable prediction, that it turned out to be optimistic. Uh, if you look at Hamilton County, which tracks quite closely, by the way, they're, they're probably one of the lead research counties in supporting um, working with uh, both the DEA and with NIOSH. Uh, but, but 2017 was another record number of deaths for uh, Hamilton County over 2016. Um, and that includes a very high level of focus. So we, we know what's, what's happening. Um, we know that, that growth is going to continue. I'd love to take an optimistic view. I don't think it makes sense. What makes sense is to, is to look at the facts and, and be prepared. Um, so training, be ready for what you go into. Know, know the potential issues. Uh, have the right uh, protective equipment to be safe, but to still be functional. Um, and lastly, use the resources that are out there. Uh, again, NIOSH, CDC have, have, have published an extensive amount of, of training specific uh, to opioids and to fentanyl. Um, OSHA also has some, some outstanding hazmat training materials, uh, somewhat broader. Um, but th this is the simple, just be informed. 
uh, and be prepared. The, you know, the risk is real, it's growing, and it is having more of what we call the unintended consequences uh, on society. And with that, Alan, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. I will uh, you know, reach out to, to, to everyone listening that, that we are certainly here you know, at Ansel. Our, our goal, um, I think, is, is very much uh, you know, aligned with, with our, our National Safety Council friends and the Safety and Health magazine, but it is to provide information, um, to provide educational training, and to provide the, the right solutions to, um, uh, to the users out there and, and to keep people safe and productive. All right. Thank you very much, Derek. Great job. Uh, thank you as well for your excellent insights and expertise. Um, before we start the q and I want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen. Your input is important because it will help us improve future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. With that, let's get to some questions. The first one, I understand the risk for first responders and police officers, but why the major concern for other industries like hospitality? Oh, great question. Um, so with, uh, with, you know, A, with the, I'll start with this rapid spread um, and a little bit of this cat and mouse game. So again, we're, we're, we're looking at, at a material that, that only needs to be produced in very small quantities. Uh, think about 50 grams being a sufficient quantity, it's a very small amount, but a sufficient, a sufficient quantity to cause you know, multiple overdose and deaths. So what happens is, is you end up, whether it's with, with smaller labs or with what the, um, the DEA might refer to as these milling operations. Um, and these are, these are, are simpler versions where, where uh, they're actually just transforming the raw drugs uh, into one of the consumable forms. So this could be making the designer form. So again, you don't need a ton of space. You don't need highly sophisticated equipment. So what happens? This could be in hospitality, um, thinking you know hotel type situations. Probably more commonly could even be uh, landlords uh, who have had rentals or, or portions of rentals. So it is this, this prevalence in society, um, this high demand. And of course, you can always follow the money, right? The, uh, uh, where there's money to be had um, uh, you know, you know the, the people or the activities will follow. So that's why we're, we're really emphasizing that this has become somewhat of a broader, a broader issue. Do you have a comment that a number group, uh, another group of potentially affected people are landlords to kind of piggyback off your question, uh, or I mean off your response, and this person says, I just had to deal with cleaning out personal belongings in a house where I knew fentanyl was being used, and it was pretty scary. Yeah, that right. would be scary. So our next question is, uh, what PPE precautions should responders use in dealing with uh, unknown fentanyl versus known fentanyl exposures? Yeah, great question. Um, a, I, I would, my, my initial reaction would be to consider them all as somewhat unknown until tested and confirmed. So a, a couple of interesting facts. One, uh, the CDC has come out and, and stopped or asked that on-site testing of the drugs be stopped. Uh, and that's because these have been some of the more um, uh, dangerous situations. So what has happened is, again, it goes back to that situational assessment. Is there reason to believe that, that fentanyl could be, um, could be present? And again, you're looking for some of the telltale signs, whether it's the powder, uh, heroin, or the use of more commonly heroin, um, other uh, ancillary additives that could be present. But the CDC or the DEA has also said, you know, don't test on site. Treat it as an unknown. Um, even the testing labs can take some time to really confirm that it's fentanyl and the version. Um, so you, if, you're, if you're looking at a very uh, strong, like carfentanil, uh, an offshoot, being much stronger than fentanyl, uh, it, would, it would be an unknown. So, so the, the top of my, my, my immediate reaction would be treat them all as uncertain and treat them all as, as the potentially uh, the most highly uh, toxic or, or strongest versions. Our next question, is fentanyl cheaper to buy than other drugs? 
Oh, that's a great question. Here's the unfortunate answer. Yes. Um, and yes, because it, it, on a pound-for-pound pound basis, probably not. But if you only need one one-hundredth, one-five-hundredth, one-one-thousandth, the amount, um, then a very small quantity becomes um, uh, e more easily produced. And so, so you know, here, here's a sample situation, and a lot of, of these drugs are being produced. I'm not going to make this a China problem. I want to be clear right now that the biggest issue in the world is in the U.S. Uh, the most number of overdose deaths uh, are by far in the U.S., um, but there are the, a lot of the labs, whether they're making the precursors or the drugs, uh, the fentanyl labs out of China. And now picture a small quantity. Think about it. A common approach might be to order online and maybe spend, you know, a few hundred dollars. Uh, by few, I mean, you know, less than $500. It would be labeled as, a, as an inkjet chemical or an, an inkjet material, uh, you know, or a powdered ink. Comes in a very small um, receptacle. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you can, you know, for under a thousand dollars, you can produce, you know, hundreds of lethal doses of fentanyl. Our next question. Are company services portable restrooms, would this add a higher exposure threat than they already have? I'm sorry, Alan, I just missed the first part of the question. Can you repeat that? I'm sorry, the, the first part is, are company services portable restrooms, and would oh. this add a higher exposure threat than they already have? Yeah, I would, particularly in, in some of the portable restrooms, um, they probably are already receiving training on things like watching for sharps. So you're starting to see sharp containers appear in more restrooms, uh, just you know, acknowledging that sometimes this, this could happen. Um, but some awareness training would probably be a good idea. And again, I would go back to the, you know, the, the, the person that, that is just servicing has an intolerant system and they could come in contact with a level, the same level that a more tolerant person who still seems very functional uh, encountered. So, um, yeah, my advice in, in these situations would, would be, and it would be more, more broad, I still think in those situations probably the, the biggest problem is the needle sticks. Our next question, is there any data on exposure to utility workers who uh, enter homes? Wow. Um, you know, it, it, this is probably even harder. I think with, with law enforcement and emergency responders, um, there's a lot of training and a very, very intentional training around situational assessment and risk assessment. Um, you talk to an experienced uh, first responder, not only are they good at it, it's, it's second nature. They know they immediately can come, whether it's a triage situation, an assessment situation. Risk assessment is simply part of, of the, the daily task. Um, if you look at more of the, the home, um, I, I, you know, I think the problem is still training and awareness. Uh, and I certainly would not advocate that we, we start putting everyone in the world in protective equipment. Um, it would be an, an undue or an excess. Um, so is the risk higher? I, I'm, I don't know, and here's part of the or here's part of the, the complexity of, of the question. Um, we know that it's becoming more prevalent in society. Uh, we know that it's that it's more dangerous than than drugs that we've encountered in the past. Um, we know that because of the way it interacts with with our natural system, uh, that that rapid uh, an onset uh, kind of a depressed functionality. Um, and almost a euphoric feeling along with that, with that depressed state. So, so we know that, that all these risks are higher. Um, the, the thing is, if, if you look at the number of facilities where it would be required, where there might actually be production going on or dangerous quantities going on, it doesn't take many uh, to supply, even though, I mean, the, the broad number is probably big as a percentage. It's still quite small. Um, but, but I would probably say, you know, somewhat similar uh, to the previous is that folks going into unknown situations should just be trained in situational assessment and always be prepared to have a back out plan, whether it's as simple as 
great. Um, Mr. Jones, yes, I just need to check in with my supervisor to let him know that I have arrived at your household. Walk out, call someone, say, this place looks suspicious. I'm not comfortable heading in. Can you get me out of here? Um, but I, I call that more situational assessment training than necessarily specifically fentanyl training. Um, I think it, 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 that, that it's some of the ancillary professions that I'm, I'm more concerned about, um, and these could be these are good examples. They're probably more remote, um, but it still speaks to the need for broader training. Our next question, do you think CDC or NIOSH will start mandating fentanyl-tested products? Uh, they are just recommended now. You, you know, very speculative. I, I, I believe it would be a great idea um, to have to start having some classification testing. Um, I, but I also think that what, where they would stand if they were on the call with us um, would be that they have, have made some good recommendations. Um, they typically will avoid mandates when it comes to the broader public. Uh, they will use more mandate or mandated requirements uh, in specialized areas. That could be in, in the special operations or hazmat protection. Um, so no, I, I think if, if we waited or relied upon them to provide a mandate, uh, that, would, that could be a miss on our part. The recommendations are quite sound. Uh, they're quite sensible. Um, you know, I would also just say you know, a little bit off the, the question topic, but there, there really is a, a tremendous amount of work going on both with uh, the DE, uh, DEA labs um, and CDC or NIOSH laboratories. They're working collaboratively with local authorities. Uh, they're working on better testing systems um, across the country. They're working on both prevention and in enforcement activities. Um, and I'm, I'm relatively impressed with the body of knowledge that they have amassed. Uh, so I, I do think their recommendations are sound, and I'm skeptical that we'll see any mandated requirements or certainly any broad-based mandatory requirements. Our next question, does fentanyl have any odors? You know, that's a good question. I'm going to have to say you, you, you stumped me. Um, I don't know. Uh, now I'm going to have to look it up, and I, I will we'll publish the answer. Um, it, it because of the different forms that we would want to look at um, uh, at how the different forms might have different odors. There are also when I talked about the chemically altered. So think about adding a, a methyl group, for example, that could add an odor or an acetyl group. Um, some of these chemical modifications could change. Uh, the odor, but um, you know, I'll just compliment whoever came up. Great question, and I don't have a great answer for you. Our next question: um, What about logistics companies that are unsure if uh, fentanyl may be in a package that can be damaged? Um, would carrying Narcon be recommended? That's a tough one. Um, uh, you know that there are actual incidents and documented incidents of postal workers and package handlers uh, being impacted, um, both from the leakage of contents, uh, but more commonly from intentionally contaminated items. Um, the, the, the this is very much an opinion, but if I compared fentanyl, if I wanted to use fentanyl as an insidious way to get someone sick, the, so I'll use the anthrax example. Uh, where anthrax was, was sent through the mail system, it was intention, or intended to contaminate. The problem was the anthrax didn't have tremendous value outside of, of, of some, you know, uh, malicious use. Um, the fentanyl is, is quite protected um, and, and highly valued by its, by its owner. So, A, I don't think, in, so the cases where you have intentional contact, I think are, are less probable. Right? So, so a truly malicious person, I would, would probably go with something like an anthrax. Um, two, the, the contents generally sent in a powder form, in a small quantity, and in a plastic vial. So the um, odds of damaging, so, so, so compare, let's compare a, a tub or uh, you know, a five-gallon drum or a 10-kilo package wrapped in, in foil and plastic, the, the uh, damage is easier. 
the, the spread more, more readily probable. Um, with small quantities and relatively stout packaging, I wouldn't classify it as a high risk, but I would go back to the same, um, same precautions. Uh, you know, one thing that's probably, you know, there, there's no, there are no certainties, but what you're probably not going to find is, is, for example, a, a, a tied box full of fentanyl powder. Uh, that would be, for fentanyl, an, an absolutely massive quantity. Um, being moved around, and pro that probably wouldn't be shipped. The ones that we know of and read about are generally very small quantities. By small quantities, I'm talking, you know, 50 grams or less, which is less than two ounces uh, of material uh, being shipped around. So, you know, again, the, the, the training awareness is always recommended. Our next question, if we report an incident to the authorities, will we immediately know what the substance was that we found? <laughs> yeah, this, this is what I love this question. It, it seems like, like we should, and it's one of the struggles that the authorities are having right now. Uh, so if you look at uh, what the DEA is doing, um, where they come into, you know, they're constantly hunting down uh, and encountering. Um, here's the problem. Uh, right now, the, the rule of thumb, so to speak, is two weeks to accurately identify a substance. Um, having on-site testing or some of the kind of previous test kits, these are typically, when you're looking, when you're looking at on-site drug testing, these are indicator kits. They're not designed to be specific. They're not designed to be highly accurate. They're more of what we call litmus test, a yes, no. We believe it's present. Um, and here again, the, 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 the DEA is, is asking law enforcement professionals not to do on-site testing. So here's the scary answer to the question is no. Uh, it's very unlikely that you would know quickly. Um, and that's one of the reasons, so I'll go, I want to touch on this quickly because it's a great point. Symptoms are going to be your fastest indicator. So go back, review, look at what the, the contact symptoms could be. Be aware of those. Um, the test results would, I mean, in most cases, the damage has long been done uh, before the test results come in and are confirmed. How does the level of risk compare between inhalation and dermal exposure? Um, I, I, I don't know that I, I can give a good comparison. There, those are my number one and number two concerns. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Um, inhalation, of course, because the particles can be quite small and you need very little uh, to, be, to become quickly intoxicated or, or to even have extreme or severe symptoms. Um, uh, the problem is in, in, in poorly lit areas, a, a fine dust, even, even a somewhat invisible dust, is always a concern. Uh, so in a situation where um, the, the situational assessment would say, you know, looks like potential drug production, um, inhalation is one of my first because we're, we tend to be a little more conscious of the things that we touch. Uh, rather than breathing. So if you're also, if you're in those types of situations, respiratory rates can go up, so you can start breathing more quickly. Um, you know, adrenaline will start to flow, depending on the situation. Uh, both are important. Uh, the dermal uh, can be a slower. That's why the, the dermal patches are so good for the, the longer term. Um, inhalation is, is a much faster uh, method of, of getting the symptoms. So, um, Certainly be careful for, of both. Um, basic gloves can be a, a wonderful first uh, preventive action, uh, along with a simple, um, so I'll back up, with, uh, with fentanyl, because it's not an oil base or it's not an oil containing, if you look at the, at the NIOSH ratings for even masks, um, a simple N100 mask or particle filtration mask can be reasonably effective. Now, this is not a hazmat mask. This, this is a simple protection. Um, but uh, in those two, you've got to be very sensitive uh, for, or, or, or very cautious about inhalation. And, and uh, alongside particle, if there's any burning, 
or smell of burning, and the vapors can be equally toxic, and they're also very fast. The vapors can, can even more easily defeat our, our sinus and our, our natural filtration system. All right, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded to our speaker. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. That ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Derek Warnicki, everyone at Ansel, and, of course, all of our listeners. Have a safe day.